Welcome to the Herd Mentality Podcast, an eclectic weekly mix of atheistic and humanistic conversations with complete strangers. I've never met them and they've never met me, but we're throwing caution to the wind, taking a risk with a dodgy internet connection, and God willing, get an interesting conversation for you to listen to. I'm your host, Adam Reeks, and it's time to meet our guests. Welcome to the Herd Mentality Invasion of the Theists edition. We have two callers from the other hemisphere. Who are you? Where are you from? My name is Sean Ferguson. I'm, I live in Calgary, Alberta. I'm a theist. I would say a Christian theist, to be more particular. I live here with my wife and children. I have a internet ministry called Wax Axiomatic, and where I argue for the truth of Christian theism, and I argue that it is not only a viable worldview, but the most viable worldview available to us. My Twitter handle is at Wax, capital A, Axiomatic. You might want to spell that one. Sure. At W-A-X, capital A, X, I-O-M-A-T-I-C. Cool. All right. On the right. Yeah, and my name is Justin, uh, and my Twitter handle is Phil Lost. So P-H-I-L-L-O-S-T-O-P-H-Y. Cool. Um, Where are you from? Well, I'm from uh, originally from uh, Nova Scotia, Canada. I lived in uh, Calgary right now. Sean and I are friends out here. I'm a carpenter, so I took that be like Jesus thing a little too literal. And uh, pretty much all I do, I'm just, uh, I have an interest in philosophy. That's, that's pretty much where it goes. So I'm a Christian theist as well. Fair enough. Okay, the intro to the show isn't quite truthful because we have met before, haven't we? That's yes, true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, as fate would have it. It was one of the earlier podcasts we were planning to do that turned out that it didn't record at all, unfortunately, so we're going to have a second crack at it. What is the most annoying thing about atheists? <laughs> you know what? Let, let, let me have a little go with this one. Um, it's, it's probably the same thing that's annoying with, with I guess, people. It's kind of hard to blanket them, mm-hmm. right? But uh, uh, I have most certainly noticed, and I've recently just tweeted about it, or retweeted a couple of articles, where other atheists have such an issue with the arrogance of atheists of these online atheists. Now, I've never met personally an arrogant atheist outside of Twitter or the internet, but there seems to be this sort of arrogance and, and anonymity, I guess I could say. And it's it's genuinely annoying, you know, when you're trying to talk to somebody and they, they're talking to you like you're an idiot or they assume that you're not you're not read on the subject. I might be a carpenter, but I do happen to read quite a bit, so I have a bit of an opinion, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it just, it tends to get kind of annoying. And, and one article in particular I tweeted was an atheist uh, who was genuinely annoyed at the arrogance of atheists, uh, of online atheists. What about groups like Ash, for example? Have you encountered those guys? Well, Sean wouldn't have much uh, uh, much, much interaction with these guys. But do you? No, I, I haven't. But uh, what I would like to say is that, in general, I don't find atheists annoying. However, when I do find atheists annoying, it's for a fairly specific reason. And it's that they often don't understand theism in general, but Christian theism in particular. They don't understand what it is that Christianity teaches, what it affirms, what propositions it's uh, committed to. And therefore, when they reject Christianity out of hand, which is often the case, they don't really even understand what it is that they're rejecting. How can you truly say that you disagree with something when you don't understand what it affirms? So there's a lot of of, uh, straw man arguments being set up against Christianity by a lot of these, what I would call more militant atheists. I wouldn't say uh, atheists in general, but to be fair, I find the same thing annoying about a lot of theists who attack atheism and they don't really understand the reasons for atheism and things like that. So it's it's more of a people problem than an atheist problem. And how do you solve a problem like people? Yeah, I, I totally agree. Well, generally you have to define your terms. You have to make sure that 
the discussion takes place first that allows each side to explain their position, what it is they actually affirm. It really involves both sides. Instead of trying to assert something right off the bat, they ask questions and they genuinely want to hear the answers. And then they use those answers to inform the discussion from then on. It's that age-old story where people don't really listen to what it is you're trying to get across. Yeah, I think people don't listen to what it is that other people are trying to get across. And on top of that, even worse than that, I would say, they assume that they already know what the person's position is and they they just run with it and they try and attack it even though half the time it's not an accurate representation of what that person believes or what that group of people believes. Mm. Have you got anything to add, Justin? I, th- I think though, if, if you want me to comment on the Ash the Ash sure. thing, I've, r- I've run across a few of these. There's There is a few of them that are, are uh, actually decent people to talk mm. to, but then there's also, uh, say for instance, like uh, I had a run in with this one guy, his name is uh, Iron Atheist they have on here and just completely shut down to anything that you try and say and we're all brainwashed and this and that and i mean really you know what it sounds like is a lot of 14 year old kids got a twitter account mm. right I, i'm not sure that iron atheist is a member of ash i think he's uh, a rogue superhero oh okay he was granted okay. powers by another force oh. <laughs> well those are the most interesting kinds aren't what they? about <laughs> what about discussions you have with, say, ex-Christians who have be- since become atheists? The, in the, the majority of the time when I meet people who used to be Christians, there's a very similar story that's told. They were raised in the faith. They grew up. They started to you know, experience the world. They started to have uh, some serious questions, some valid questions that demand answers about the existence of God, about the truth of Christianity, about miracles, about all this, this these sort of things, these things that Christian theists are committed to. And they go to their pastors or they go to their parents, they go to those people who uh, they look up to and they respect and they ask, well, what about this? You know, how, like, how can I believe that a man was raised from the dead? How can I believe in the modern scientific age that uh, miracles happen? You know, how can I believe in a God when there's, you know, evil and suffering in the world or all of these, these hard questions. And the pastors, because they're not well educated on these issues themselves, they say, you know, you shouldn't ask questions like that. You should be quiet and you should just have faith. You know, it's all about faith. You just have to trust God no matter what. Don't focus on your doubts. And this is a huge mistake because oftentimes, you know, these people walk away and the youth of today are not dumb. They're increasingly more and more intelligent and they will not settle for for, uh, answers like that being asked to just put their fingers in their ears and close their eyes. Justin? Yeah, I I couldn't agree more with Sean on that. And I think uh, to take more of a lighthearted look at it, it's it's almost like ex-smoker. Like, have you ever noticed that when when you have a guy, he he quits smoking, and then it's like anybody who's smoking around him, he's just, he's hateful and and completely spiteful about it, right? And and it's, it seems like they become even more vitriolic uh, than, say, just somebody who was, who was uh, uh, raised as an atheist, more more so anyway, but... Hmm. Well, you mentioned that a lot of these young people go to a church and speak to the person in charge. or the, They'll ask a question along the lines of, why is there suffering in the world? How would you answer such a question? Right. So, you know, the argument um, against God, the problem of evil, as it's called, just to uh, make it clear for those who, who aren't fully uh, familiar with it, it, it basically says, if God is all-powerful and all-loving, then why is there evil and suffering in the world? So the basic idea is, if God's all-powerful, he should be able to eliminate evil and suffering. And if God is all-loving, he should want to eliminate the evil and suffering, right? So it seems to be the case that because there is evil and suffering in the world, there and if there is a God, he either can't be all-powerful or 
you can't be all loving. And the way I would answer this question is I would say that both of those propositions are false. I would say just because God uh, is all-powerful, that doesn't mean that he can do uh, logical contradictions, for example. Um, and this is the traditional Christian understanding of God's omnipotence or being all-powerful. Um, God can't create a squared circle. God can't create a married bachelor. He can't create a person instantaneously that's actually 30 years old, right? These things are logical contradictions. It can't happen. So just the same, the Christian story is that God created men with free will to choose whether or not they loved him because in order to have true love, you have to have free will. Love, the love has to be a choice. Otherwise, we would just be automata. So he created man with free will, but that demanded man's capacity for choosing against God. Now, because God can't do logical contradictions, he can't create someone and give them free will, yet force them to do something. So it seems to me that the proposition that if God is all-powerful, he could stop evil and suffering is false. Now, for the other proposition, that if God is all-loving, he would want to stop evil and suffering, well, that's a pretty hard hard statement to make. I think that, for example, if God wants people to love him, he would give them free will. And to give them free will, like we already said, demands that they choose against him. Now, because God is loving, he wants us to choose to love him as well. And therefore, it might not be the case that he wants to eliminate the possibility for evil and suffering. And as long as there's a possibility, well, then it can genuinely happen. So I think that both of those premises are false premises. doesn't uh, defeat the existence of God at all. What's the concept here if you don't accept God? Is, is there not a threat of internal damnation? Well, certainly, but I would... The issue is this. God is the source. I mean, the traditional Christian idea of God is that God is the source of everything that exists. He's the source of life. He created the universe and everything in it, and he sustains it in being, right? Now, if you choose to reject God, and, and God is ultimate goodness, if you choose to reject that, God basically says, okay, you can have your wish. I've given you free will. Now I'll allow you, giving you free will, like we said, demands that he has to allow them to actually have the come with that free will. So when they choose against him, he says, okay, I'll give you your, your, your wish. And what that is, is to reject God. But God is the source of everything. Therefore, this person is cast out of all that God has created. Jesus calls... Can you define Jesus, Can you define source of everything? God, so I would say that God is the only being that exists due to the necessity of his own nature. He was not created, he exists eternally, and everything else that has come into existence and is sustained in its existence is through God and his power. Right here, Justin? If I was to add, uh, to add anything in there, one, one would be... In regards to the problem of evil, uh, a lot of that, when it, when it comes down to the suffering, I mean, a lot of times what people are saying is, is it's not so much the suffering in the world, it's the suffering that they've had in their own lives. And so that, that, that requires more of a, a pastoral thing. Another thing is that the problem of evil doesn't really say anything about the existence of God. Maybe that you wouldn't trust God or something along those lines, but not really so much about the existence, I don't think, at least in regards to the probabilistic version. Um Another thing, too, I'd like to add would be uh, we have the means for people not to suffer. Uh, we have a lot of wealth in this world. We have uh, a lot of food that we can we can share. Uh, however, we, we seem to to want to hoard our wealth. We seem to want to hoard our food. You have North America that has an obesity problem. You have Africa that 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 it's like they took all Africa's food almost kind of thing. Right. Like it's, it's disgusting. The other thing I would like to add would be when it comes to hell, I find the the exegete. Right, the exegesis taking taking what, what what scripture says about it would be a real problem because it tends to be Dante's Inferno that that people tend to go with, right? Instead of what scripture actually says, and scripture is really really very fuzzy as to what 
hell itself actually is, right? I guess so. I, I mean, your wording of, of internal damnation will probably be best, um, but I don't think it's like flames and fire and you're down there burning. I think that was apocalyptic language <laughs> that was being used. Just sounds like Australia. <laughs> Banished to here for the rest of eternity, and nobody needs that. Yeah, the English tried that one, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was... I was going to bring up a point. You, you mentioned the Africa. I see when debating with a theist on Twitter, and look, most of the time it's it's pretty friendly. Okay, you can get a bit feisty when you're trying to make a point, but I often see people just throw up the picture of the starving African child, and I see that as uh, yeah. it, it, it's actually counterintuitive because it, harking back to what we discussed when we first started chatting, it's it's very off-putting. Yeah, it's, it's from, from that point, you don't have the ability to make an impression past what you've done. I'm not a big fan right. of that. I'm, I'm more for sort of asking questions and getting people to have to think about their responses. But we're also talking about hoarding wealth. What are your thoughts on the church and the amount of wealth that it hoards? Yeah, it's prosperity gospel mm, kind of creatures and that kind of stuff. It's a little bit do as I say, not as I do. Right, so there's this disparity between the teachings and life of Jesus Christ and what the, the so-called church actually does. Correct. So I would say, my view is that it's a travesty, but wherever there are people who are going against the teachings of Jesus Christ, Jesus himself said these people are not his disciples. And now I'm not exactly sure what you're referring to when you're talking about the hoarding of wealth. Like you could be talking about the history of the Roman Catholic mm. Church, for example. They hoarded a massive amounts of wealth. Justin and I are both Protestants, so we're evangelical Christians. We're actually not members of the Roman Catholic Church. So we would totally agree that that is not a good thing. Also, in, in instances where there are you know these televangelists or things like that who they're trying to tell people that send me money and we'll, you know God will do miracles for you and things like that. This is absolutely horrible. It damages the gospel, and it goes against everything that Jesus taught. Jesus said specifically, truly I say to you, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He also said, do not build up for yourself treasures on earth um, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but build up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart lies also. Jesus was absolutely against the hoarding of wealth. He commanded us his followers to go out and use our wealth to uh, help those who are in need. In fact, the early church did just that. But see, from my perspective, I see that they were effectively sowing the seeds, and, and <coughs> to this day it continues in the less educated areas of the world, such as Africa. It's probably the most extreme example I can give. But by instilling a, a religious belief system within a population, you then effectively have a form of control over them. So while they, they may have been going out and doing charitable work, it was self-serving. That's how I would view it. Well, when I see the early church... When I see the early church, first of all, I'm talking about, about the first two centuries of Christianity. At this point, Christianity was not an institutionalized religion. It wasn't until the Emperor Constantine, when he made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, and he did that, it seems, I mean, I can't speak to the man's heart, but it seems that he did that as a power move in order to unite the Roman Empire under one religion. What he did was he really Romanized the religion at that point. But before that, Christianity was not an institution. There were, all churches were local congregations, and they all went off of the teaching of the apostles. There was no um, pope. There was no organization of churches that had to follow under some authoritarian individual or group, right? So I do agree that after the Romanization that occurred in the 4th or 5th century, that Christianity started to be like that. But before that, I don't think it was like that, at least not okay, heavily. Well, 
something that comes up from time to time is uh, tithing. I know very little about it because it seems to be something that's rarely spoken of. I've seen a couple of evangelical preachers say, uh, have, have the gall to say, you must donate X amount of your money, otherwise you're not going to get your place in heaven. <laughs> in order for an institution to run, it needs money. And in order to get money, you need tithing. What are your thoughts on it? Well, my I think what I would say... In regards to tithing, I, I would have to speak experientially. And so my church that uh, I, I go to uh, a church here in Calgary, a Baptist church, and, and the Baptists here in, in, in Alberta actually look after uh, what's called the mustard seed, which is the homeless shelter for Calgary, the very large homeless shelter. And so part of my money goes to that. Part of my money goes to uh, supporting the uh, missionaries that are out there. And then part of my money goes to the, to the place that I come to meet every week. Now, I pay dues to go to a gym, all right? I work out my four nights a week, and uh, if I want to keep going to the gym, I'm going to have to support it. And so the same uh, goes with, with my church. If I want to keep going to church, it's not like these guys, you know, in, a, in an economy where you have to, uh, you know, in regards to a building and everything else, if you're going to have this stuff, you're going to have a place where we're going to meet, and if we're going to be, be able to do this stuff, we, we have to support it financially. And so as, as for the, if you don't support it, or if you don't give them money, uh, you're not going to go to heaven thing. Well, that's just silly, right? I mean, it's, it's you, you can give what you can, right? And that's really what it amounts to, right? Fair enough. There's, so there's no expectation placed on you? No. no. Uh, well, I would – so you're, there's something – we have to make a distinction here. There are certain churches that believe that tithing is essential, and there is an expectation placed on you by the church. However – there is no commandment from Jesus himself to give 10% of everything you earn to the institution of the church. In fact, the early church, like we were discussing already, didn't even have an institution. They didn't have like a local building where they would all congregate. They would congregate in their own houses. And if anyone did give money, it was to so that to ease the suffering of other people, other Christians. Or, you know, if this Christian couldn't pay his bill, well, everyone would pull the money together and help him pay his bill, right? In fact, the early church would sell everything they have and give it for the good of the Christian community at large. Jesus commanded us to help the poor and to use our resources for that. He did not command us to pull our resources so that the pastor can drive a Rolls Royce or so that... <laughs> what about lifting people out of poverty, though? Because the best way, rather than remaining poor, which is an argument Christopher Hitchens made of Mother Teresa, uh, she's not a friend of poor, she's a friend of poverty and keeping people in poverty. Because when you're in poverty, it's difficult <laughs> to become educated. There's always a, a degree of subservience because you're desperate. But lifting people out of poverty is an important part, and it, it's going to have to happen in order for us to combat things like global warming and wars and so forth as resources become more scarce. So when the church, and, and not specifically your church, I'm talking more Roman Catholic here, proclaims things such as uh, no condoms and the, the rate of death in Africa is just huge. It's not lifting people out of poverty. While you can be seen to be doing something good, the belief system doesn't allow people to lift themselves out of poverty. Well, th th is that pertaining to the belief system or is that pertaining uh, also to the government and more of a social social issue, right? Because, I mean, really, well, the government if, if we're feeding people, if we're feeding people and, and, and you know, uh, giving these people places to live and stuff like that, I mean, I mean, to, to sit there and knock on that is kind of the, and I mean, and Christopher Hitchens, what, what did he do for the poor, man? Did he do what Mother Teresa did for the poor? I mean, that, man, that's just like a log in the eye, man. Take it out, dude. You know what I mean? No, uh, okay. If you teach a man to fish... You feed him for life. They, what I'm saying here is that the, the end goal should be to allow people to sustain themselves. Right. I mean, I don't think there's any dispute 
about that. Like, I, I don't think there's any Christian teaching that says that you shouldn't help people learn to sustain themselves or put your finances in a way. Jesus says to help the poor. He doesn't specify how to help the poor. It's up to us to figure out the best way to do it and what means but, but, are going to be most conducive to that help. Okay. Now, the, the, the Roman... Perhaps not specifically Jesus, but what about... It's something that, that really grates with me, the, the condoms thing and the, right. the church says no condoms. Right, yeah. So that's a, a teaching specific to the Roman Catholic Church. I disagree with that teaching. There's nowhere in the Bible or in the teachings of Jesus that affirm that teaching. In fact, I think it's ridiculous, to be honest. I think that you can't make any argument for not using condoms that can't be used against abstinence as well. But abstinence is affirmed by the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, it's required of their priests. Yeah, I think I think oh, an, wow. a, another interesting thing about the no condoms thing would be the church isn't supposed to be going out there and forcing its will on the people, man. That's not the way that works, right? Like, we don't force our ideals on, on to society. We're supposed to be part it of does society. Work. It, it is working for them. Well, I mean, hey, like once again, I'm not a Roman Catholic, right? Yeah, yeah, fair enough. It's not how it's supposed to work in the sense that it's not effective, although I think ultimately it's not effective because you get a lot of false converts that way, maybe, but you don't get a lot of people whose heart is really in it. But I think what just, that's not the way that the founder of Christianity taught us to do it. It's not supposed no. to be that way. Exactly. That, that goes into the... the I mean, I, I'm not going to sit here and call them wolves in sheep clothing or anything like that, but that's definitely gone, gone off the gone off the wrong way. Uh, take taking left turn, we should took a right. I agree. Fair enough. Okay. You, you mentioned abstinence okay. earlier. Is that one of the teachings of your particular church? No. I mean, abstinence outside nice. marriage, yes, but within marriage, uh, sex is a gift from God, and it's meant to be enjoyed, and it should be thoroughly enjoyed by those who are married. Right. Yeah. One of the Sean has five kids, so he's thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> Is, uh, is required. I'm in big trouble. But as as for me, I, I'm a single guy, right? I'm a single 32 year old man, dude. And uh, I, I didn't grow up a Christian, and I was a bouncer, right? And was messed up in in a lot of drugs and stuff like that. So I, I got around a, a world where there was a lot of women, and uh, I really delved into that for a lot of years. It's been a real a real struggle for me, which has been now years that I've been been single, right? And yeah, I, I do actually practice. Uh, abstinence outside of marriage. Let me tell you something, man. It's not easy. <laughs> I can imagine you're an exceptionally good-looking bloke as well. I've seen your picture. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> you'd, you'd, be fight, you'd be fighting them off with a baseball bat. <laughs> no. So how, did, how, how did religion help you then, Justin? How did it help me? Um, how, how can I? How can I say? Here's the funny thing. When it comes to me, I became a Christian when I was 22, somewhere, 23, somewhere around that. I, I wasn't raised a Christian. My dad was an atheist. My mom was sort of a nominal believer who, uh, I don't know, it's kind of uh, hard to explain, I guess, how she would, but I was certainly not exposed to, to Jesus or anything like that. I think, you know, like I have a whole story. Uh, you can go actually read it on my blog as, as to how I became a Christian. It's definitely, I, I think it's interesting. Oh, give us the address for that. Uh, that's Phil Lost at, uh, so what's the name of that? Word, WordPress.com or it's, it's a WordPress. If, if you go to my Twitter account, you can just click underneath it. And uh, I have the link on underneath my bio on Twitter if you click on my profile. And there's only like eight, eight posts on there. I'm, I'm pretty lazy. <laughs> I, for a lot of years, was uh, destroying myself with uh, a lot of drugs. Cocaine was a big one for me. You know, I was bouncing. I was always fighting, fighting all the time, man. I get in a lot of trouble with the cops and stuff like that. It wasn't, uh, you know, I, I came up rough, man. I, I remember one day, man, my dad called me, called me up and told me he was a, he was a Christian, started asking me about Jesus. And I was like, dude, you got to shut up. You know what I mean? Like, I thought it was kind of silly, but as time went on, uh, I guess my heart kind of softened, and then I, I realized an experience I had actually came, actually was, uh, anyway, you'll you have to read it, it's, it's too long of a story for me to tell. 
anyway, as kind of as the years as the years went on, I, I ran away from from the truth of Christianity. Right, I, I didn't want to live like that. I didn't want to live as a Christian. Uh, it, it it didn't actually help my situation at all. The problem was, though, is that I was a believer and it really did change me. So now here I was changed, completely different from what I was, the same person, but completely different uh, attitude wise. It really didn't help my my situation at all, man. It, it really caused a lot of problems until a couple of years ago, I decided I was really going to make a push to live as a Christian. And since then, man, you know, I got to tell you, dude, I went from uh, having some serious social anxiety issues to um, standing on the herd mentality doing a podcast, right? You couldn't get me to do this a few years ago, man. You couldn't even get me to go to my house and get groceries, right? Like, there was, there were some real problems there stemmed from, from years of drug abuse, right? It sounds like you've really pulled yourself together. It's a pretty admirable thing to do. Well, I, I, don't, think, I don't think it was me necessarily. I think, like, it was me working uh, with God. It, it, it's, a, it's a relationship, right? And so, he's, I, I got to tell you, man, you know, I, I can't tell you how thankful I am to God, to Jesus, man, for what he's done in my life, for real, dude, like, I mean, there was a real change, but it was up to me to take that change and then go with it, right? And so that's the point. I often see people thanking God for something that they could have taken credit for themselves. I mean, how did God directly affect your recovery? Well, you know, it's kind of funny, man. I couldn't, I couldn't drink anymore. Like I was, I was a straight up alky man, like an alcoholic dude. I was, I was boozing every night, man. I, I, I remember I used to brag because I was drunk for nine months in a row. The coke, man, like I actually, I didn't relapse, but I, I tried it. I wound up getting into it again one night, probably about five or six years ago. And uh, you know what, dude, man, I can't tell you. The uh, the crippling guilt, this this screaming at my, in my soul, man, that just went down. I really I can't do what I did before. What I used to do without a conscience, and I didn't care. Uh, I I can't do it now, you know. And and so, but could that could that be attributed to personal growth? No, you know what? I, I really don't think so, man. Because it was literally, I, I I tell you, man, it was literally an overnight change. I went from being a douchebag who you would not want to know to being who I am right now. And I think you know at this point. Uh, I've really been changed into somebody that's that's totally different. I mean, there's, like I said, there is the relationship side of it where I have a relationship with God and that I've, I've put in my effort now and it really is paying off, man. Well, I'm glad it's working out for you. Yeah, me too. (laughs) It's got to be a good thing. You've, you sound a lot, well, you certainly sound happy. And the last time I spoke to you and the the subsequent exchanges we've had, it sounds like you're pretty positive and you're on the right track. Well, you know what, man? It's, 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 uh, it's been a struggle, but I got to tell you, dude, like, uh, the more I delve into God's word, the more I delve into prayer, the the more of a glow. People around me notice, you know, they say, Justin, you're glowing now, man. It's like, you know, it's, it's, there's a definite change there, man. And uh, it's, I, I can't, there's no way I can take uh, credit for that. Sean, what are your thoughts? What Christianity teaches is that before someone becomes a Christian, we are fallen. There's something wrong with our natures due to the fall of man, you know, the story of Adam and Eve and all that. But before you become a Christian, it is, it's possible to do good acts, right? But, the problem is that the motivation from which we do these acts is often uh, selfish, right? Even if we do a good deed, it's because, well, it's going to make us feel better or uh, we want to alleviate our uh, sense of guilt or something along those lines, right? Whereas when we become a Christian, according to the Bible, and I believe this is true, God actually, I mean, you've heard the expression being born again. God actually, through his Holy Spirit, changes the human being's nature so that they are now no longer broken. Now, that doesn't mean that there's never going to be any more sin or any any wrong, wrongful acts in their life because it's sort of like a tree. You can chop down the root or cut out the root, but it's going to take a little bit for the tree to wither, right? Now, why is there a necessity to bring people into the world born broken? Well, actually, that's that goes back to the issue of free will again. God created human beings with free will and they could choose against him. 
Now, to choose against God was that fall. It was to choose to um, become corrupt rather than to be good. Now, it just sounds like it's, well, from my perspective, at least, it's only my perspective, that we're being punished for the crimes of others. It's like some of those other traditions where, okay, your father was a thief, therefore the whole family is tarnished. Right. So, and and this is not what Christianity teaches. So, it's not that we're born guilty. See, there's a difference between being born with a corrupt nature and being born guilty. Being born with a corrupt nature means you're born with the propensity to sin. That doesn't mean that you're guilty because you haven't yet sinned. This is why Christianity, um, at least in its evangelical form, teaches that infants and young children are innocent. They don't need to uh, be forgiven by God for their sins because they haven't sinned. Because part of sinning is, or, or to do any evil act, is to understand what you're doing. This is why in the court, if someone pleads insanity, well, then they're not considered guilty sometimes. They're considered insane, right? But for children, they don't understand it up until a certain age, and that age is different for every children. You can't draw, every child, sorry, you can't draw the line necessarily. But these people aren't born guilty. It's only when they grow up and they understand the difference between right and wrong, and they choose to do wrong, that they're held accountable by God. You're held accountable for your own sin, not for the sins of your fathers or your ancestors. Let's talk briefly about the Bible. Perhaps we'll finish up on this one. The morality of the Bible, and I know it's a topic that we could talk about at length for hours and hours and hours. But it seems that, uh, in my opinion, once again, I have a very humble opinion, that perhaps the Bible tries to teach some good things that in the the context of the day when it was written would have been useful for controlling people's reproductive cycles and cultures and so forth. There's some good things there, like, you know, don't steal, don't kill guys. But then conversely, there's quite a lot in the Bible that's really quite brutal and what we would currently consider to be immoral. How do you distinguish between what you can and can't take out of the Bible? I don't think you can take anything out of the Bible, personally. I was just going to agree. Yeah, I don't think you can take anything out of the Bible, um, what has to be understood is that the Bible is a complex collection of documents. There are 66 books in the Protestant Bible. These books were, for the most part, written by different authors in different times, different eras, different cultural contexts, um, in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and and, uh, Koine Greek. So there's this huge variety of contributors to the Bible. Now, God, now... And and they all put this book together through hearing the Word of God. So it's, well, it's, uh, yeah, the, the doctrine is that God used these men to write exactly what he wanted them to write. Now, how he did that is somewhat controversial, and it gets fairly technical, and again, we could have a long conversation about that. The point is, God in some way got these men to write what he wanted them to write as his message to humanity, okay? Now, on top of that, or back to what I was saying before, is that God, when he dealt with mankind, he did it in different stages. So at certain periods, he would give certain men um, certain amounts of revelation based upon what they had known previously, right? So with Moses... He was giving these people revelation based largely upon oral tradition from their forefather Abraham, forefathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so forth. Um, there may have been some written documentation, but there's none that has been found, so we're not sure. However, these people were given this revelation, right? Now, throughout the Old Testament, God gave a law through Moses that the Jews had to follow in order that he could keep them a separate people so that he could bring about salvation through by sending his Messiah through that people to the whole earth. Now, once the Messiah came and fulfilled that law, that is, he lived perfectly according to that law, and then he was sacrificed, crucified, 
and buried for our sins, and he rose from the dead three days later, according to the scripture. Once he did that, he fulfilled the old law, and by that, he abolished the old law. So Christians who become Christians, they believe in Christ, they repent of their sins, and they're baptized into Christ, they're no longer under that old law of the Old Testament. We're now under the new covenant that was bought for us in Christ's blood, um, that is found within the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus and his apostles. So whenever you read the Old Testament, Christians, and this, the Bible, the New Testament itself teaches this. This isn't just something that we're making up in order to get out of following the Old Testament. It's not that the Old Testament isn't pertinent, though. It's that the Old Testament is not binding upon us as Christians. That was binding upon Jews until the Messiah came. Now that the Messiah has come, the old law has been abolished, and we are under a new law. Okay, well, right back to one of the first points you made. Speaking about the different contributors to the Bible, is it possible that it was men and their opinions that they decided to write down and say that they'd interpreted the God? I mean, it wouldn't fly nowadays, because there's too many cameras, there's too many... People are too sceptical now, I think. If I were to say, right, I'm the new prophet hi my name's adam and here are my teachings i don't think it'd fly now i don't know jim jones is pretty successful well okay you've got got, got plenty of people who do get away with it and people like uh you know your evangelicals your joel osteens and and so forth they they have their own interpretation of it and they're, they're, they're selling something back in the day when the bible was in the throes of being created god spoke to a lot of people and he told them a lot of different contradictory things is it possible that it's just the men who made it up in your opinions well first of all you ask if it's possible that it's men who made it up of course it's possible i mean you'd have to be blatantly you know bigoted to say that there's no possibility that okay. it happened but anything's possible possibility comes cheap the question is is it likely given the data. First thing I'd like to say is that I don't want to get into the issue of whether or not there's contradictions in the Bible. That need, that would be a whole that's show itself. Show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that could, could go on for a long time. But the point is, the thing that I think is um, quite salient and important of this conversation is that God never expects anyone to just accept that someone is speaking for him. So whenever you have someone speaking for God in the Old or New Testaments, God gives these people, for example, miraculous powers, the ability to foretell the immediate future so that people can see that they truly are speaking the truth from God. And then, only then, are there long-term prophecies or, for example, are the things that they say, commandments they give in the name of God taken seriously. So God gives evidence. See, the biblical concept of faith isn't just a blind leap in the dark. What it is, faith is more like trust. You take what you know to be true, you're not 100% certain, but you have really good reason to believe it's true, and you trust in that based on what you know. That's what the biblical definition of faith is. So when God gave these words to these people, he also gave them the ability to prove that they were speaking for him. And he took um, someone who falsely spoke for him very, very seriously. Um, He even says that, In the Old Testament, a prophet who um, falsely spoke in the name of God was to be stoned. And the way that you would know if someone was truly speaking for God is that they are never wrong. And if a prophet made a prophecy or um, laid something down along those lines that did not come true, then that person was not allowed to be a prophet. They are considered a false prophet and punished by the Mosaic law. Go on, Justin. That's right. He he actually set up tests, right? Methods in Deuteronomy and uh, through Paul, right? But Paul commands you to test everything. So it's not just that, like, I mean, a lot of these people are. Test thy God. No, no, you're not testing thy God. That's an equivocation because the word test is you being used in, with a different meaning in that, that context. In that sense, what he's saying is, don't go around and do things such as, well, God loves me and he wants me to live, so I'm going to jump off this cliff 
and you know God should save me if he exists. That, Don't that, do ridiculous that, things that, like that. That to me seems a little convenient. I must say. Well, I mean, we we didn't write the Old Testament though, and it's like thirty five hundred years ago it was written. So, mm. like these particular rules, so I can't say it's convenient to say that well, putting these mean, people. What do you mean to by, the test. by convenient? I'm not sure what you mean. By that. Well, to be able to put that as one of the prophecies and say, well, don't test your God in 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 the way that you describe, because what it boils back to is critical thinking. It discourages critical thinking. Well, actually, it doesn't. God says, no, 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 no. "Come, let us reason together." Um, in First Peter three fifteen, all Christians are commanded to. Always be ready to provide a defense for the hope that you have within, but with gentleness and respect. We're commanded to provide a defense. Well, the Apostle Paul, all throughout the book of Acts, his modus operandi was to go in and reason with people about Jesus Christ. He rented the Areopagus and debated all of the Greek philosophers day by day, trying to convince them of the truth of the gospel. The Bereans, these people from Berea in, in the ancient Greek world, the ancient Roman world actually, were commended in the Bible because when the apostles came to them, they tested all things and they didn't just accept anything blindly. God doesn't want us to not test him in the sense of not verify that what is being said is truly coming from him, God, when he says not to test him, that is in the sense of once you are already a Christian, once you already are a believer and a follower of God, don't go around trying to make demands of God and saying, if you don't do this, I'm no longer going to believe in you. There's a difference, a big difference between those two things. I think that's one for another show. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Justin? Uh, no, I don't really have much else to say. I'd just uh, like to thank you, Adam, for giving me a, a chance to come on the show. Again. Uh, it was nice talking to you. <laughs> Again. By the way, I just want you to know that I totally hold you responsible for the first time. Uh, I'm just putting well, it out there. See, I'm just you, putting you, it out you, there, pal. You might blame me. I'm blaming God for that one. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. But anyway, so anyway, dude, I, I just want to thank you, buddy, for letting, letting me come out here. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure, and you're welcome back any time. And, Sean, have you got anything you'd like to add or anything you'd like to plug? Yeah, um, so I would like to, again, thank you because this has been an excellent chat. It's been very stimulating, and I'd really enjoy to uh, have more conversations with you in the future. I, like I said, have an internet ministry called Wax Axiomatic. You can find my website at www.waxaxiomatic.ca. I have a blog there um, where I'll be speaking to a lot of issues on philosophy, theology, ethics, and apologetics. And there's some articles there as well. You can go and read about me and my ministry and see what we're all about. You know, don't worry. We won't ask you for any money or anything like that. (laughs) (laughs) So Feel free to you know peruse the site, and uh, you can contact me there if you read something that you disagree with, you think that I'm a complete idiot, whatever. Uh, give me a message, challenge me. I'm very happy to respond to you and, uh, and to please, address your please issue. be nice if you're going to challenge yeah, these guys. I mean, They've had the balls to come on the show. So any atheists out there, don't be rude. Put it that way. Not, nothing, <laughs> nothing is uh, out of bounds. So say what you want to say, but do it respectfully. And I promise you, I'll reciprocate that respect, and we can have a congenial conversation that is hopefully productive. That's the plan. That's why we're here, right. gentlemen. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank, thank you. you very much, Adam. Thanks, Bye, buddy. guys thanks for listening if you enjoyed the show please consider subscribing at the website herdmentalitypodcast.com and send me half a coffee each month to support the work i do i'll see you on twitter smiley face